The Gospel of Luke. The Lord gave us four portraits of his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were part of the original 12 apostles. They were literally eyewitnesses of Jesus. He called them from the beginning. In Matthew's case, he called them away from the tax collector's table, and Matthew left it on the spot and followed Jesus. Mark apparently was a very close associate of Peter, so you could understand Mark as Peter's gospel. Mark relies heavily on what Peter told him about Jesus. John, perhaps the best known of all the gospel writers, was the disciple of the twelve that was closest to Jesus. Luke stands alone. As Luke will tell you in the beginning of his gospel, he wasn't an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. But make no mistake, he was a wholehearted believer. In fact, Luke gave us, in terms of words, gave us most of the New Testament. He only wrote two books, but they are so large and tell us so much that in terms of actual writing, Luke wrote more than anyone. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and later he wrote its companion volume, which we call the book of, anybody know? Acts. In both of those writings, he begins with a prologue. In other words, this is a word said to the reader before he begins. The interesting thing about reading the Bible is it is the inspired Word of God, but it's given to people, and they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, at specific times in history. So they write in their languages. They write sometimes without explanation of their customs. So there's a cultural distance between us and between the life of Luke, some 2,000 years now. Let me read this prologue with you, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. I asked you to open my Bible, and I don't have mine open. That's a rookie mistake. I beg your pardon. Okay. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody have it? Luke wrote, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. First of all, who wrote this? You say, well, that's easy. It's printed in the Bible. If we read the text itself, Luke himself never tells us that he's the author. How do we know that? From the very earliest testimony recorded from us in history, from the early church, the earliest and unanimous witness that we have from the first Christians was that Luke wrote this gospel. And he shows up in surprising places. In Colossians 4.14, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor... So Luke was a trained physician. That's one of those human elements in the gospel. If you read Luke's gospel compared to the other three, you'll sometimes notice that Luke gives more physical detail. When he's relating the healing of miracles, he gives tiny little intriguing details that the others don't. Why? Because he was a physician and he was trained to observe and to diagnose. When did Luke write this? Scholars believe that the Gospel of Luke was written about 62 A.D. 
Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. A major Christian was martyred roughly in the year 62, and Luke is such a vivid and careful historian, he certainly would have told us about those big life-changing events in the life of the nation and the early church if they had happened in his lifetime. If you read the companion volume of Acts, because the way Luke wrote it, he wrote a two-volume set, one historical work called Luke-Acts. He picks right up and addresses Theophilus, and we'll talk about him in a moment, when he introduces the book of Acts. When you read to the end of Acts, Paul is preaching and alive and happy, and God is doing great things, and then the history slams shut. Why? Because that's when God used Luke to write this down for us. Now, notice, 62 A.D., in other words, some 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why is that important? Because this is an account, not from an eyewitness, but from a friend and an investigator of eyewitnesses telling you within the lifetime of the people who walked alongside Jesus, who know what his voice sounded like, who could describe him physically, who could tell you what it was like to be there when the 5,000 were fed. He wrote that within their lifetime and gave this astonishing supernatural account of what God had done, not hundreds of years later, speaking about something that none of them had ever seen, but within his lifetime. In other words, he made it very easy for himself to be ridiculed if none of it were true. Now, let's talk a little bit about the historicity of the Bible. And I'd really encourage you not to tune out here. I have to give you a little bit of a historical basis of why we believe, why we have certainty that what the Bible, what the gospel writers wrote down is what they themselves actually knew, believed, and left for us in their manuscripts. Because the first thing that Luke wants us to know, and those first four verses show it, is that Luke is giving an historical account. He's not writing something from musing or fantasy or wouldn't it be a great idea if he is actually telling you in the literary form of his day that he is doing his very best, humanly speaking, to write down history. Those first four verses in the Gospel of Luke that I read to you, those were one single polished sentence in Greek. Luke didn't write in English, he wrote in Greek. And these first four verses are one beautiful flowing sentence. It's a literary prologue. In Luke's day, when someone sat down to write history in this form, they would introduce their work by using a, an introduction like this to signal to the reader what follows has been carefully investigated. These aren't just stories that we're telling. These aren't just what I think about it. This is something that is actual, careful history. Let's read it again, and you'll see the pains he takes in this short little passage to let the reader know that he's trying, very, he's trying very diligently to be a historian. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, in other words, the apostles, Jesus' first followers, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's a personal name in this even. Who is it? 
Theophilus. You ever met a Theophilus? I did in Mexico. Somehow that name carried over into Mexican culture. Theophilus is a Greek word that means a lover of God. Theo, God, philo, to love. We don't know who Theophilus is. It may actually be a nickname or a pseudonym, but we believe it's a real person because Luke calls him by a title. What is it? Most excellent. That's a form of reverential address. That's how you would, that's how you would address someone in government. The Bible tells us that the message of Jesus spread so powerfully that even those among the household of Caesar became believers. So, taking all together, it looks like Theophilus was maybe a Roman dignitary, someone high up in the Roman government who deserves this address of being a most excellent person, who has the happy name of a lover of God. It's likely then that Theophilus was a Gentile convert to Judaism. If so, he would have been going to synagogue Saturday after Saturday, hearing the Hebrew Scriptures read and explained, and then appeared this figure, Jesus, and we don't know how, but Theophilus came to trust Jesus. He came to be saved, just as you were. And now, some 30-some years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Luke, having become a close personal friend of people who knew Jesus personally, said a lot of people were writing about this. Many people have set written accounts down. It seemed good to me that I would do the same so that you would know with certainty that the things that the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the story of Jesus have told us are true. Those things were delivered to you. You were given a message. I want you to know how true they are, so read on. So this particular Sunday, I've got a very short passage and quite a bit to teach you about it compared to next Sunday, which will be the rest of the chapter in a single Sunday, believe it or not. I want you to leave here with a certainty. That's what Luke intended by his prologue, that you would have an understanding that your relationship with Jesus is based on personal trust in him, but it's not an unreasonable trust. It's not blind faith. It's reasoned, it's ordered, it can be accounted for, it can be investigated, it can be questioned, and most of all, it can be proven true. That's what Luke wants us to know, that he is writing historically. Now, Luke is telling us, first of all, in the first four verses, he's saying, Theophilus, I have sources. Other people have been writing about this, now I'm writing about it. I've talked to the eyewitnesses, and what, this is vastly important for us, because we live in a culture where we say, whatever you believe, as long as it's not hurting anybody else and it kind of gives you some moral uplift, then that's good. Have you heard this kind of thinking? Okay, that is primarily seen in a little bumper sticker that says, coexist. Have you seen that? That's a great idea. We should coexist. We should treat each other well, regardless of what we believe. It's not working out that way in the world, and it never has. But we have this 21st century idea that facts don't matter so much as feelings, and whatever you believe, as long as it helps you, then go ahead. Luke doesn't know anything about that. Here is a physician, likely a Gentile, we're not entirely sure, but likely a Gentile, a trained doctor who somehow has come out of his worldview to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus, so much so that he, began, he became an apost a companion of the Apostle Paul. If you read his second book, the book of Acts, in, Luke 16, in Acts 16, Luke suddenly starts saying, we. Why? 
because he was there. He joined the journey. You need to know that your faith in Jesus, in this person we call Jesus Christ of Nazareth, has a historical basis, and it's very well attested. It's well documented in the ancient world. Because some, I, three or four times a year, somebody asks me, I get that you love the Bible and you read the Bible and you explain the Bible. How do you even know that that's what those guys wrote down? You ever had that question? I mean, maybe they just printed it in Nashville and sent it over to California, right? <laughs> Let me tell you exactly how. When we compile the New Testament, we're relying on what scholars call manuscript evidence. The original writers wrote what they call autographs. In other words, they wrote down by hand what God was inspiring them to write. We have none of those autographs left. They've all disappeared. What we have is a tremendous amount of copies that are very early in the ancient history, and we have a great number of them. Let me explain by comparing that with some ancient secular histories. When it comes to evaluating manuscript evidence from the ancient world, scholars say the older the better. In other words, the older the manuscripts are that we can find, the more confidence we have in them if they were closer to the events they're telling us about, that they're reliable. Well, the gospel manuscripts, the earliest fragments that we can have, and these are incredibly delicate, amazing to look at, little pieces from the ancient world that somehow survived almost 2,000 years. The earliest manuscripts from the Gospels are 100 to 200 years after the life of Jesus. Now, that sounds like a long, long time ago, right? Shouldn't we have something even earlier? Well, other ancient histories are 800 to 1,000 years after the events that they record. In other words, Everything we know about Rome and the Caesars, the earliest history, manuscript evidence that we can find about those histories, the things you were taught in grade school and going forward, all of those teachings depend on manuscript evidence that came almost a thousand years or fully 1,000 years after the Caesars lived. Now, did your history teacher ever tell you we think this is probably what happened, but frankly, the manuscript evidence is weak and very, very late. Did they say anything like that? No, they just told you about the Caesars, right? Why is that? Because historians of the ancient world know that the standard is different. Nobody in the first century was uploading things to the cloud. Nobody had Google Drive. These things didn't circulate digitally. Transmission wasn't perfect. Here's some examples to give you some idea. Manuscript, people who evaluate manuscript evidence also say not only the older the better, but also the more the better. In other words, if we have more handwritten copies of these things, whether we have the autographs or not, and we don't in either case for the Christians or for the history of Rome, we have no autographs left but we have handwritten copies that came closer to them, and the more we have of those, the more we can compare them. And if we're finding manuscripts in different parts of the world, and they're 50, 100 years apart, and they're all saying the same thing, a historian will say, okay, that's legit. That's what the historian actually intended to tell us. Well, let me give you some ancient manuscript evidence from the first century. There was a Jewish historian named Josephus who mentions Jesus in his histories of Rome. For Josephus, we have 133 manuscripts. 
There was a very, very important historian of the Roman Caesars named Tacitus. For Tacitus, we have a whopping three manuscripts. And scholars are grateful to have found them. And they tell us on the basis of these handful of manuscripts, this is what ancient Rome was like. We can tell that this is legitimate. What about the New Testament? Not only the Gospels, but once you consider the entire New Testament, and we keep finding more, scholars are up to 5,600 manuscripts. See the difference? I would think that would elicit at least a small reaction. There's a, there's a slight difference between three and 5,600. Now, why the difference? Whenever I do this kind of research, I always like to read the other side of the story. I want to hear what the skeptics say. One such skeptic said, it shouldn't surprise us that a popular religion has this much manuscript evidence. It was a very popular movement. Well, true. The question he misses is, why did it become popular? Do you remember how the life of Jesus ended? On a cross. Where were his first disciples? They were on the run. They locked themselves in. They feared their own death. What happened? What made the difference? The Gospels tell us they saw him for themselves and from that moment forward went straight ahead with courage that they had never before had in their lives. Why is there an explosion of manuscripts? Because once they saw Jesus back from the dead, something that no one had ever seen, anyone promised their own death and resurrection and then actually fulfill it. That's why Luke says these things have been accomplished among us. He's referring to fulfilled prophecy. He's been going to the synagogue, hearing the Hebrew Scriptures, and then comes a man that eyewitnesses can tell him down to the detail, the tone of voice, what he did, where he stood, what it sounded like, everything about him. This actually happened. So they set themselves down to writing it down and translating it and sending it everywhere. It became popular because it was true. So you can base your faith on something that is actually true, not on a feel-good story that may improve your life. I got in trouble because there were some little kids in the first service. I hope I don't do it again. But sometimes in our culture, we invent make-believe figures to get better behavior out of people. Are you familiar with the tooth fairy? <laughs> Why did we invent the tooth fairy? Because occasionally we have to yank a tooth out of a kid's head, right? And we say, if you will allow us to do this barbaric thing, a figure will come to you and deliver money. Oh, I just saw a little child in here. I'm so sorry. My bad. Okay, well... Oh, boy, I assume everybody's in children's ministry. By the way, it's wonderful, folks. If you want to check it out, I'm, uh, you can avoid me making these kinds of mistakes, okay? Follow the difference I'm trying to point out to you. There are fictitious things that improve people's lives and make people better. The eyewitnesses and their close friends had nothing to do with that when it came to Jesus. They're saying, we believe this, and we're telling you about this, and everybody's writing about this, and everybody's teaching this, and now I'm doing the same, says Luke to Theophilus, for one single reason. It actually happened. So what I'm trying to tell you is there is no doubt about what the authors of the Gospels wrote. There just isn't. You're holding it in your hands. 
Two scholars, one of them uh, has since passed on, another is still, in spite of his scholarship, a skeptic, say this about the New Testament. If we lost all the manuscripts, we could reconstruct them from the sermons and the teachings from the first Christians. They wrote so much and copied the New Testament down so much in their sermons and writings and teachings that we could put the New Testament back together if we had no manuscripts ever at all. In other words, what am I trying to tell you? The New Testament you hold in your hands is by far the most well-attested, most well-documented ancient writing in the entire world. There's no doubt what the gospel writers wanted to tell us. Now, why doesn't everybody believe it if that's so? Because what Jesus asks us to do is very humbling. Jesus says radical things like this in the Gospel of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus faces his disciples and says, if anyone wants to follow me, take up his cross and come with me. Jesus says that it's worth it to lose your life on earth only to be found in him. Jesus says it would be better to have your hand cut off or your eye put out than to go to hell Jesus says that people who listen to his words are like wise people who build on the rock, and when the storm comes, they'll be safe. But people who listen and don't do what he say are like foolish builders who choose soft sand for their house, and when the storm comes, they'll be swept away and everything will be destroyed. There's no doubt that's what Jesus said. The eyewitnesses and their close associates wrote it down for us. Why don't people want to believe it? Because it's not a matter of history. It's a matter of a spiritual battle that rages in every human heart. Whether people will trust themselves or trust Jesus, that battle is being fought again here this morning. I'm introducing the Gospel of Luke to you to give you certainty of your faith in Christ. If you don't know Christ... I'm giving you a well-reasoned presentation from just four verses of the gospel and inviting you to read the gospel of Luke as we go through this over the next several months so that you will know how real and powerful and historical the faith of Jesus really is. What will stand in your way is not evidence. It's the resistance that I once had in my heart and still do sometimes when Jesus shows me in his word what to do next between choosing to trust myself or choosing to trust him. So Luke says, I have sources. He also says, I've been careful. He says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. These first four verses are his introduction and details, and they signal that he's writing history for us. But not only that, verse 1 says, I'm writing to you about the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, Luke is saying the life of Jesus fulfilled prophecy. We can't know for certain, but it appears, and Mike, if I had to take a guess, I would say that Luke is one of those Gentile converts who tired of his paganism and started attending the synagogue and heard the prophecies of Isaiah, and heard the Psalms, and heard the law of Moses, and was tender-hearted. In the Bible, in the book of Acts, Luke himself calls that crowd, that community, God-fearers. These are people who have a reverence for God, who are listening to the Hebrew Scriptures. Then comes Jesus, 
And that same Jesus, as Luke tells us in the fourth chapter of his gospel, goes into the synagogue and reads the Hebrew Scriptures and says, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's not a promise anymore. It's not a prediction anymore. It's happening right here, right now. And Luke says from the very first verse of his gospel, I'm writing to you about things that have been fulfilled among us. This isn't just a whimsical account of one great man's life. We're watching prophecy fulfilled, and that made it for Luke and the apostles, that made it not only historical, that made it deeply personal. And really, that's where this passage comes down and meets us. Look at verse 1 again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Slow down and look at verse 2. He says that the people who were with Jesus from the beginning, he describes them in two ways. Those first believers, those first Christians, the apostles were first of all, what does he call them? Eyewitnesses. But they were more than eyewitnesses. What else were they? Ministers of the word. Another translation, if you have a different translation, would you tell us what verse 2 says? Servants. Very common translation, exact same Greek word translated well, minister or servant. Minister is a little, people don't know what to do with that. I tell people I'm a minister, they have no idea what I mean. They don't know if I work in government or I'm one of those weird pastors, okay? It's well translated to say that they are eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, why does that matter? That's huge. Luke is saying that what people saw about Jesus reoriented their entire life. They weren't just eyewitnesses to something. That eyewitness made them turn into something else. What? Servants. Ministers. People who oriented their life to spreading that message. See, that's, that's significant. I've been an eyewitness to all kinds of cool stuff in my, in my life. There's very, very, very few of those things that I've personally witnessed, that I have personal knowledge of, that I want to tell anybody else about. They just don't mean that much to me. The few things in my life that I have been an eyewitness to, the most significant things I gladly share. And Luke says that's what happened with the first apostles. It was personal for them. In fact, if we look in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see exactly the effect it had on those first apostles who had once been cowards. Peter was my favorite apostle. He's my favorite apostle for several reasons, including the fact that he was half-hearted and easily frightened, and he once denied knowing Jesus at all. But then Peter saw Jesus back from the dead, and look what happened in Acts chapter 4, verse 18. This is Acts. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Now the apostles are boldly going and telling people everywhere about Jesus. And we'll read together. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Peter and John are standing in front of the most important Jewish religious body. It was called the Sanhedrin. It was the same group of people who had engineered the death of Jesus. They have been taught from childhood that these people are the custodians of God's Word and they alone can tell the people of Israel what the Old Testament means. 
They've preached in the name of Jesus. They've done a notable miracle in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin is upset. They're arrested. They're hauled in front of this group. They're literally put on trial, and they are threatened to shut up about it. Here's their response. Would you read with me? Acts 4, 18 through 20. We'll read it right off the screen so we can all read the same thing. Luke writes for us in Acts this. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You understand what they're saying? They're saying, boys, you put us in a tough place. God's told us one thing, you're telling us another. We'll leave it to you to decide whether we should obey God or you, but we can tell you this much. We can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. The eyewitnesses of Jesus became his ministers. The eyewitnesses of Jesus became his servants. They left tax collection benches and fishermen's nets. They left stellar religious careers like Paul the Pharisee. They left families and homes. They left safety. And to a man, almost every single one of them were hunted down and killed. Having opportunity to withdraw the story and to recant, to say, hey, we were just fooling. We were pretty excited. He was a really great man, so we were telling everybody about it. But listen, if, if it's between you and if it's between sticking to this story or you killing me, no, we didn't mean it. We're sorry. Thomas, who gets this rap of being, he has a nickname. What do we call the Apostle Thomas? Batting Thomas. If, hist if church history is to be believed, the Bible doesn't tell us any more about him. If church history is to be believed, Thomas died all the way over in India, a martyr. What made the difference? People who knew Jesus took it personally and dedicated their lives from that point forward to telling everyone about him. If there's a single difference between the ancient church and the modern church, right up to and including ours, is that we are witnesses and we know how real Jesus is. We don't rely on evidence alone. We're grateful that it's there. We can rest in it and trust it and feel good intellectually that there are compelling reasons to believe in Christ, but we know that Jesus is real for even better reasons. We know how much he saved us from. He, we know what a, great wit, what a great difference he has made in our lives. And we are witnesses in that sense, but we then don't turn the corner and become servants to tell anybody else. See, a servant has no expectation of being treated fairly. A servant is just someone who has put himself under the task of doing a job. The eyewitnesses of Jesus were also his servants, his ministers, his eyewitnesses who were willing to tell the story even if it cost them their very lives. If we want to make this very personal for ourselves, here's what I know about Crosspoint. We live in a world that is increasingly skeptical about Jesus. And we also go out into a world where our friends and family members and neighbors, the people who live on my cul-de-sac, the people I rub shoulders with every day in our community, many of them, and they tell me so, have no awareness, no relationship with the one who died to save them, and rather than be bold as these men were, I draw back and keep quiet. That's the difference between the ancient church 
and the modern church. What difference would it make if we would arm ourselves with holy courage and say, Lord, we weren't your eyewitnesses, but we know just as much as they did how real you are. We will now take no account of our reputation. We will tell others your story. We will tell others your life, your death, your resurrection. Let's stay on this for just a second longer. For the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of Christ in the first century, it cost them their lives. What might it cost us to be witnesses to Christ here in our little part of Orange County? This is where you talk back. What risk are we running? What might our cost be? Reputation. Rejection, relationship, and just being thought that you're unreasonable. Is that about it? Now let's take it back to the first century. Let's think about a physician writing 30 years after the life of Jesus. What might his colleagues have thought? Luke, don't you know what a dead man looks like? See, sometimes we read ancient histories of Jesus, and we, I think, kind of unwittingly think that ancient people are stupid. Like they could be easily duped and not know the difference between dead and alive. They were completely convinced Jesus was dead. That's why they ran. That's why Peter denied him in the first place. Peter could tell it was all over. They're taking my master away to kill him. Whatever this ever was, it's over now. I'm going to deny ever knowing him. But then they saw him back from the dead. And a physician, I'm sure, broke company with every other doctor he ever knew unless that person became persuaded and became a Christian himself. Paul the Apostle had prestige and probably money that we cannot imagine. What did he get instead? Prisons, beatings, shipwrecks, betrayals, every kind of mistreatment imaginable. Why? Because they knew it was true. There's a vast difference between the testimony of Christ and other religions in the world. Before I finish this sermon, I want you to see this. How Other Religions Began Someone had a private idea about God. Or someone had a private dream about God. Or someone had a private encounter with an angel. Then that single someone told the rest of the world. This makes other religions impossible to verify because there are no eyewitnesses of the prime event. How Christianity started. Jesus spent three years doing miracles and teaching publicly. Jesus was executed publicly. Jesus was buried and rose from a public tomb publicly. Jesus showed that he was alive publicly. Then it was the public that told the rest of the world. Christianity is the world's most testable religion. See the difference? We're that public. Because Luke tells us, I want you to have certainty of the things you've been told. The purpose of the Gospel of Luke is to give the reader absolute certainty that Jesus is alive and well that he is able to save. What does that mean for Crosspoint? Simply this. The saving life and death and resurrection of Jesus really happened. 
What should we do? We should tell the world. That's why we give to missions. That's why we have pastors like Sal Sabernian to bring us a world perspective. That's why we have offerings at the end of this service so that the gospel can be preached from this corner everywhere. And it's easier sometimes to give than it is to reach across the table and start difficult conversations. But we're standing on the crest of actual history of what God has done in the world. It's personal and real, and it is certain. You can bank your life upon it as the first disciples, as the first believers did. We have a great Savior. Cross point, let's tell everyone. Let's tell the world. Let's pray together right now, please. Could I give you a moment to think about your friends and family? This week I've heard from a couple people that friends, family, co-workers they've prayed for and witnessed to for years are getting closer to trusting Jesus. What about you? What's your circle look like? Who do you work with? Who's at your school? Who's on your high school campus? Who do you go to junior high school with? Who lives as if none of this mattered, none of it existed? We're now his witnesses. Not eyewitnesses, but we have the same reliable confidence that they had. Who are you going to tell? Who needs to come to church with you? Who do you need to pray for? Who do you need to start a conversation with? Take this moment and pray for them right now. And if Jesus isn't certain and personal and real to you, can I invite you in his name to turn away from your own self-confidence and say, Jesus, please, forgive my sins, save me. Thank you. I see somebody raise their hand. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that. If you'll trust Jesus this morning, could I just ask you one single little human favor? Take that card and let us know what you've done. We want to help you. We want to teach you. We want to talk to you about baptism, which is the next thing Jesus told you to do. We're not trying to start a movement. We're trying to be faithful witnesses and servants of the movement Jesus started by coming back from the dead to give eternal life to anyone who would trust him. If you don't know him, if you don't trust him, that could be you this morning. Just soften your heart, give up on yourself and trust him and he'll save you. He really and truly will. Father, would you work in hearts if there's someone here who needs you, who's been putting it off, raising objections, simply procrastinating. I pray, Lord, since you're alive, that you yourself would draw them right now to give up on themselves, to say sorry for their sin, and to say, Jesus, please save me. Thank you for dying for my sins. I give up. I give in. Save me. And for the many who are here, and for these two young sisters who were baptized this morning, help them and help all of us who have been walking with you for years longer to be not second-class witnesses, but among the best you've ever had who would have the same kind of courage the first Christians did to tell everyone about you. We give, Lord, this offering, and we dedicate these babies and we welcome new members and we baptize people in every good thing we do, including what follows next. We do because you are good in Jesus' name.